0: Bernard Salt is an Australian newspaper columnist, keynote speaker, business advisor and author of six best-selling books, but he's most widely known as a thought leader in demographic patterns and predictions. He's also credited with globally popularising concepts such as the smashed avocado, Vespa and sea change shifts, changes which are currently reshaping Australia's culture, economy and society. But for all of his outward-facing and portfolio career success, It turns out that Bernard's worst nightmare is rocking up to a party and being asked what he does for a living.
1: Because, in his own words, well, it's complicated. From humble beginnings growing up as a working class kid in a housing commission home in country Victoria to today, Bernard has been always passionately curious about using statistics to tell stories which inform social trends and human behaviour in Australia, which he still describes as the lucky country. In this conversation, we go a level under the statistics with Bernard and discuss how education freed him and why the pandemic world we're living in needs a bit of a control alt delete moment so we can all lean in and take the learnings, wake up to where we're at and rethink the future of Australia for ourselves and for future generations. Here's our conversation with Bernard. Bernard, you spend a lot of time observing and analysing Australians, people like us, who we are, how we live, what we think, where we've been, where we're going. Who is Bernard Salt? <laughs> I was waiting for you to ask,
2: what is the average Australian or something like no. that? You flipped it back on me. We're holding the um, mirror up. I, I like to describe myself as a failed history and geography school teacher. So um, I'm trained as a school teacher, but I got out into teaching rounds Burwood High School, 1978. They have a lot to answer for that school. And I discovered that the kids, year eight I think it was, they were just not as enthusiastic about my subject area as I was. And I thought, I'm going to take the coward's way out. I'm going to go back to university and do another degree. So um, I passed up on teaching, went back to university, did another degree, looking at the um, evolution of Australian cities and particularly Melbourne. So uh, the evolution of Melbourne from effectively 1836 through to uh, that time. Why were you
1: particularly interested in that? I I grew up in country Victoria,
2: a little town west of Camperdown, a little town called Tirang. It was 2,000 people. And I was just always fascinated, a bit in awe of Melbourne. It just seemed so big, so scary, so exciting, so... I don't know. There was something about it. Uh, from a very early age, I was just fascinated by this idea of this this monster city, Los Angeles in scale. Not that I even knew what Los Angeles was then. So I um, have just always had this interest in the, in the city, how it evolved, its geography, its demography, uh, its planning, so yes, that's uh, you know probably the consummate Melbourneian. Except I don't go to the football, don't go to the tennis, but I'm fascinated by this machine and how it works.
1: So would you self describe as a country or a city person? Oh, I'm
2: a country boy, country boy. Yes, I happen to be based in the city at the moment, and uh, so yes, uh, grew up in um, small town country Victoria, um, housing commission house. So you uh, know, very working class family. Always uh, regarded that as um, you know as a good as a good background, good base, and uh, in my measure of country kids compared to city kids was could you chop wood because we had cousins and you know every country kid knows how to chop wood and you know kindling um, but you know city kids struggle with that. Oh, an axe. I My cut myself. <laughs>
1: no. They just need to know how to turn on a switch, don't they? No, Not well, the it, just, the it just, you know, there's more there's sort of there was a pragmatic element
2: to living in country Victoria at that stage. This is in the 1960s, of course. So it was prior to the Cultural Revolution. You know, we're very British. We ate um, loin lamb chops and meat and three veg, pavlova on a Sunday with cream and banana on the top,
0: bananas uh, a bit risque. I would have thought berries was the way. No, to no, go. no. It was or peach, no, just
2: no, no, no. Just it was always the same, and that was you know we thought that was like heaven. And when I look back on it, uh, growing up in Tirang in the nineteen sixties as a as a kid, uh, it was incredibly British. It was almost as if we were living in Yorkshire. Mm. We were a province of London. At that time, or of England at that time, you know, there was God Save the Queen. We watched on the buses on TV. There were American shows at that time, like Laugh In. I don't know whether you wouldn't remember. Laugh In was very was very American humour, and I remember my father saying, oh, "Bloody Americans! They'll laugh at anything." Whereas his idea was that British humour. Was, was a better quality. I didn't know there was qualities of humour, but mm. that was, uh, we were just very much orientated towards this um, English colonial way of life. There was our a language,
1: British sensibility as well around our cultural well, well, uh, archetype, like our newsreaders sounded British. Well, yes.
2: yeah, the newsreaders sounded British, and if you looked at our, our homes, we, were, we had taken an, the English concept of a bungalow and just put it in the colonies. It took the Greeks and the Italians in the, and it took them 30 years to actually win us over. But by the late 70s, early 80s, this idea of indoor, outdoor living, you know, the, the Greeks arrived in Melbourne. I reckon they said, what the hell are those Australians doing living in an Eng- English house? They have a Mediterranean climate, therefore you should have indoor, outdoor living. And all of a sudden, the Australians said, actually, you're right. Mm. And so the good room at the front of the house just disappeared and you then took the guests right through the house to the living room at the back, and you had that indoor-outdoor terrace, which over the last 15 years I think has sort of morphed into Fresco. Mm. just one yeah, word.
1: Yeah, of course. What about the Queenslander though? You know, because they they started use elevated oh, well, houses no, and getting the breeze yeah. through. So when did that come in?
2: Uh, I think, well, certainly the Queenslander was uh, a development um, that responded to the environment at the time. So I think that actually reached back into the late uh, 19th century. It's just practical, was a pragmatic response to the climate uh, at that time. But I think if you you went to a fashionable Queenslander in, say, Paddington or New Farm in Brisbane today, then they would have the whole kitchen family room out the back uh, with the butler's pantry off to the side where you do the real cooking. You have a show kitchen just to show And you do the real kitchen out the back. So I'm sure that even Queenslanders have adopted this this style. And to me, that's the story of Australia. We were a British colony, I think, for, um, well, it's not quite 200 years, 180 years. The Greeks, the Italians changed us as a people. And initially, we rejected that. And then we actually started to absorb that. And then we started to show off to each other about how sophisticated we were by having a sort of indoor-outdoor living and and we started drinking coffee and mm. cappuccino and lasagna. Yeah,
1: and becoming multicultural. Multicultural. So we're in there, and this is sort of layering something a bit more complex in. So what we're talking about really is a shift in identity and how we perceive ourselves and culturally – what are the representations of that really, and and where do we, where does the indigenous, where does the, the dual narrative come into that then around how we self-identify as well, Australians?
2: I, I must say that um, that I think the um, uh, the indigenous movement, I don't think that it is was really present, and that's that was the issue. I think at that uh, at that time we were a British colony. Then we absorbed Italian and Greek um, sensibilities and preferences and palette shifts and it's only been over the last well oh, since you know maybe maybe the turn of the century that was a really present reflection in middle australia of the indigenous component of uh, of australian history
1: mm, well i think there were, you know indigenous people were still classified as flora and fauna until the well- 60s really so they weren't present in our constitution or in our or visible in society as well whereas where we had the influx of you know of immigrants Greeks and Italians. it was very yeah it was well, very obvious to
2: us. the indigenous community wasn't uh, counted in the census until mm. 1966 yeah. so again that's uh, evidence there was of course um, you know grassroots indigenous movement much before that, but I suppose my observation is by the time it reached popular culture, it's, you know, there was, it's inconceivable now that there would be a public event and there not be an acknowledgement to country, mm. and that has been the case now for probably 25 years or so, probably a little bit before, before that. Mm. So, yes, we have shifted. I would actually say that we're actually quite a an adaptable people, quite an absorbent culture. We'll cherry-pick bits and pieces and, uh, you know, the most powerful influence, I think, has been the Mediterranean, you know, kissing each other on the cheek and uh, and eating lasagna and coffee and, and so forth. We will actually pick up, you know, we're like magpies or birds. we'll pick up little bits and pieces that we think will embellish and adorn our culture and contribute to our lifestyle.
0: So, Bernard, just listening to you talk, you are so passionate about The history teacher, the geography teacher, is still there there alive and well.
2: (laughs) It is. And, you know, those year eight kids. They missed out. They missed out. They missed (laughs) out.
0: But the rest of Australia gained what they lost. Where does this passion come for exploring human behaviour?
2: Human behaviour, it's it's more Australian human behaviour. I'm fascinated with timelines. I'm very interested in anthropology, Mm -hmm. for example, and the way in which... Australia has evolved as a continent and how it was peopled, certainly the Indigenous community. Now, dates vary, but, you know, the earliest I've seen is they've been here for 60,000 years. You know, our history, you know, you can go back and say, well, it's 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. The Indigenous community was here for 55,000 years before Western civilization's um, record actually starts. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by that story and then I'm also fascinated by the peopling, the mm. discovery, the peopling, the colonisation of Australia and how we, um, and then how we've evolved into the modern cosmopolitan, fascinating mm. people we are today.
0: Did your parents talk to you about people or about Australian history?
2: No, no. In fact, mum and dad had a um, uh, very basic uh, education. They weren't like school teachers or something like that. I forensically cross-examined them <laughs> for 50 years. I had a fascination with, uh, you know, what was it like during the war? Where were you when Darwin was bombed? What was the music you listened to? Who was the, My mother was unbelievable. She had a filing cabinet mind. She's only just died three, four months ago, and she was 95. I could ask her at 95, what was the weather like in Tirang in 1953 in June? And she said, oh, very cold winter that year. It was oh, unbelievable. Wow. Then she could go forward to 1968 and then she could go back to 1936. She had everything. She might take a little while to just sort of get her cogs into gear, but uh, she could actually say this is what was happening then, that was what was happening then, and I could then sort of say, "Well, here's how Australia evolved." She wasn't so much interested that, but she was very interested in recording. She should have been a scientist mm. in another era. Had she had the opportunity to go to university, you know, it would have been have to have been thirty years later. Um, or if the, she
1: wasn't female. Well, well, <laughs> 30, years, thirty
2: or forty years later, yeah. females. That's that was my point. Mm. A, an, an extraordinary mind mm. that was un uncultivated, unnurtured, Mm. unnurtured is the right word. No
1: opportunity. No opportunity. And you think, well,
2: how many people, both men and women, from that era? Now my father was a different kettle of fish, um, sort of um, country bloke, would never have wanted that. My mother would have absolutely loved it.
1: What did he do, your dad?
2: He uh, was a storehand, she worked in a shop, and then ultimately um, managed the shop later in life. But uh, it was a co-op in uh, Tirang, like a farmers co-op, and eventually he um, he managed that. But when we were growing up, he um, carted bags of wheat or whatever it is to farmers, loaded and distributed through the uh, to the district. So. We were a working-class family, and no, Mum and Dad were very proud of that in the old sense of the of the word. Mm. I remember asking Dad once, why didn't you go to university? Because I didn't even know. Said, why didn't you go to university? And he roared laughing, and he said, oh, only rich people go to university. This was probably about 10 years before Whitlam uh, enabled um, working-class kids effectively to go to university, which is which is what I did. When Dad said that... I thought, I don't care what it takes, I'm going to go to university. Yes,
0: that's what I was wondering. I'm, I'm listening yeah. and observing the way you, you're telling your story that it sounds like there was some part of your parents' experience, is true for all of us in, mm. in, in some way or other, that you wanted some of it you, you really respected and you liked mm. the way they lived and the choices they were making but there was another part that you wanted something different, something that they hadn't had?
2: Oh, yes, very much so. I, I wanted desperately to go to university. Yes. So I um, I did that, and I didn't know the range of jobs. You know, growing up in small country town, you think, well, you know, being a school teacher is best thing you could possibly do, and it's a terrific profession. So I did you know the whole teacher training thing, and then just realised no, I want to um, I want to take this further in terms of inquiry. Yeah. This, this fascination with the way in which cities evolved and communities evolved and so forth. Did and
1: your then, parents support you in going to university?
2: Oh, very much so. Yes, yes. And they were very they were very proud. <laughs> I um graduated, of course, and um they came down to, you know, go to the graduation, which is basically you just sit in a room and <laughs> yeah. It's got a big with deal. a silly hat on. Yeah. <laughs> and um <laughs> you're not gonna believe this, I got the dates wrong. it was like uh the the following week uh so they missed they missed my undergraduate degree uh this was prior mobile phone so i think you know and this was in december so all my friends had sort of gone off and done stuff and people said i thought it was odd that you weren't there and um anyway so they came from Tirang down and then i realized just two or three hours beforehand actually i've got the date wrong so did so, the
0: three of you have lasagna and cappuccino?
2: <laughs> Not, no, lasagna, that was 1979. Um, lasagna.
1: Uh, Meat and three veg, maybe. No,
2: no, <laughs> that would have been early 1980s. But um, I did do a master's and then they came down I got that right. So, uh,
0: What did education mean to you?
2: Uh, it meant freedom. I admired my teachers. I loved my school teachers. And so they were incredible. You know, it's like the history teacher, the geography teacher; they just they just seemed so clever, mm. and they just thought so much differently. And so I really admired them, and I wanted to be like them. I yeah. suppose. So mm. um, you know, they were great role models, in some respects. Mm. No, I think if you look through your child, you think, you know, you take that element from your parents and this element from, I don't know, football coach or, or whatever. Other significant others. Yeah. yeah. But so, if
1: you've got a limited frame of reference, if you are marginalised demographically, yeah. you know, geographically, then you, can, you don't know what you don't know. And if you exactly. can't see it, you can't be it a lot yeah. of the time. So in a small town, if you're not having your mind expanded or your ideas expanded, then it's quite difficult. So you must have been quite... Inquiring as a young person, then to think beyond the walls of the town. Well,
2: yeah, I suppose. Look, ultimately, my career was spent in management consulting. Now, I'm not even sure that the was that the an phrase, apology you just made. <laughs> I don't think the <laughs> phrase "management consultant" um, was actually uttered in our house. No one would have. What collection of words does that mean? Mm. So, even if I had have known, it wouldn't have occurred to me. A school teacher, perhaps. But then you adapt. So, you know, that didn't quite suit. So I kept pursuing something else. So I was, you know, working at one of the accounting firms in the strategy division. I had one of my bosses take me aside one day and say, Bernard, you need to let go of the demographics thing. It's never going to get you anywhere. <laughs> and I oh, thought, wow. I thought, mm, yeah, okay, I accept that. And didn't particularly like him much. But, and I thought, well, you know, if that's the case, then that's fine. But I enjoy what I'm doing. So, this is my lot in life. You know, I don't need to be, you know, whatever. I'll just keep doing what I find interesting and engaging and rewarding. And um, if it leads nowhere, then, you know, that's my lot in life. And once you give into that and pursue something, not because it's going to make you lots of money, not because it's do whatever it is, but because you are genuinely interested in it, then that shows through. I've been told. In my speaking career, that Bernard, you're very passionate.
0: Yes, yeah, it. you can see that and coming out in
2: you. Oh, am I?
0: Yes, well, you're making me want to learn more about the city of Melbourne
2: because because if if you are interested in it, then it just comes out so easily, mm. and then everything else will flow from that. Is the uh, yeah. is is the way things have worked out for me?
1: If I bumped into you at a party, <laughs> I didn't know you. Well, and I said, "Oh, hi, Bernard. What do you
2: do?" What do I do? I I, I love that question. You said
0: in your in your, one of your columns, "That's your worst." nightmare. It is nightmare. my worst
2: nightmare. What do I say? So, so, what
1: do you do?
2: Oh, I will. I'll try deflect the question if it's genuine. You know, should we
1: try that? Do you want to do yep, it? Right? sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what do you do,
2: Bernard? Um, I'm a um, business advisor.
1: Oh, who do you advise?
2: Business. <laughs> oh,
1: right. Look, right what, what kind of businesses? Oh,
2: just you know, mostly in property. I'm trying to right. exit.
1: Then I'll tune out. I'm yeah. trying
2: to exit, and about after the third or fourth, you will lose interest thinking this guy just does not. I find it really hard. I mean, what do I do? I do a little bit of this, a bit of that. You've seen those uh, those, diag- those Venn diagrams. Yes. So, you know, a little bit property advisor. I do a, a columnist, uh, um, a speaker, um, and, uh, you know, do other bits and pieces. There's no real term for me.
1: (laughs) Is that deliberate? You're a slashy, are you? A
2: slashy, yes. But I I think I'm in the middle of about five or six of Mm. those circles in a Venn diagram. And I sort of happily live in that little bubble in the uh, in the I middle.
0: I think, do we call that a portfolio career? Yeah.
2: Portfolio career. Yeah, I suppose so. But it's, you know, it's what I find interesting is what I will do. I don't do stuff that I don't find interesting. Mm. So
0: what question would you ask yourself, apart from do I find this interesting or not, if work comes your way, whether it was some years ago or in the future, what is it that you ask yourself, what's the guideline?
2: It needs to be, you know, um, is the client ethical? Uh-huh. Do I have, get the right vibes with this? Do I really want to be associated with this this person? So, you know, that's very important to make in advisory because you're dealing with uh, maybe 10, 20, 30 people per year in, in that sense. So you need to have a very good antenna.
0: And as you look at Australia now and the world, and we're in times – I'm going to use the word unprecedented mm. times, new normal apparently. Yeah, new normal. But lots of pivoting. We've heard it all. Do you see yourself as an optimist or pessimist about the the road forward for
2: Australia? Yeah, very much an optimist. I think we have been. You know, we you know these very difficult times, of course, but we have been in far worse times than this. In the Great War, as it was known, we lost sixty thousand diggers, men mostly, out of a population of four million. We lost 15,000 people in 1919, so that's 75,000 deaths in five years. In the decade that followed was the most optimistic, positive, entrepreneurial, upbeat period. Fashion changed, dance changed, like the Charleston dance, d- jazz music. Businesses like Commonwealth Serum Laboratories were founded Quantas was founded. Woolworths was founded at that time. The women's movement, the suffragette movement, had evolved about in the previous day but really flourished in the uh, in the 1920s. We really celebrated at the end of catastrophe. The same thing happened after the Second World War. We celebrated then, um, sort of homemaking in some respects. We are seen as a safe haven and a safe harbour, a place of sunny optimism mm. at a time. Following global calamity, we're in that at the moment, and I th- think that means that we'll, we'll be seen that way again. Especially the if you wall, look at the way in the which was not
1: over, though. I suppose that's the difference that they had a beginning, middle, end, and we're still yeah, in, still the, going. Well, yeah. wherever the middle is, we don't yet know that because we are living. It's fairly dystopian what we're living through. I mean, just on the we look at China aside from the pandemic and the shifting global economy mm. and a shift to sovereignty, Australia trying to now shore up to see, well, what might that look like if we actually start to pull back on our supply chains mm. and some of those over-reliance we had on mining, for example, as a sector. I mean, what do you think about we're the lucky country, right? I mean, what do you think about Australia in terms of how we're going to fare economically as we step into a very different-looking global economy?
2: I do think there is prosperity lies ahead for Australia. We have 25, 26 million people in charge of the resources of an entire continent. That equation alone means that we are a fortunate people. What we require is geopolitical security. And we had the um, the Brits for 150 years or whatever it was, and then for the last 70 years there has been the Americans. But the geopolitical security of Australia isn't assured and so there could be issues that we need to manage. And I'm not predicting anything disastrous, but I'm just saying that it's a very different world, say 2030 to 2050, than we have enjoyed from, say, 20, from 1945 to uh, uh, 2030.
0: Mm. You've also said that the coming of the coronavirus has triggered a return to core values, a flight to safety. mm What do you mean by that?
2: Flight to safety. Well, we have returned home, working from home. Expats are coming home. We have returned to the home to work. If you pick up the tabloid paper in any capital city today, I don't care when this is broadcast, there will be five or six pages devoted to Harvey Norman. Home furnishings, home furniture, home appliances, home technology. We are adorning and embellishing and improving our home because the home is a little bit like an airport terminal if you increase the dwell time then you tend to spend more mm. in and on that uh, on that building so instead of being out and about in the city centre or in the hipster suburbs, you know, eating at cafes and restaurants and Instagramming your food and parading smash and dab the whole thing, promenading, seeing and being seen, you know, that was pre-COVID. Post-COVID it's, well, you know, the whole idea of the frisson of congestion uh, doesn't quite feel right at the moment. What we now want is the safety, the security, the familial relationships, the community relationships of home. So I'm actually suggesting that what we will see is a shift in the way Melbourne and other cities will work. This is the rise of the so called 20 minute city. Yes. So you live, work, play, mm. recreate, go to university, go to a cafe, go to a bike path, whatever it is, all within the local area it's something that the town planners have been banging on about for 20 years globally it's because you reduce carbon emissions it's better for your mental health you don't have to spend as much on transportation infrastructure it builds community it invests in personal relationships mm. uh, it's a it's a it's a better way you need people to scale up in terms of their use of technology you need the introduction of a zoom room in every home, (laughs) which is what you have here. Yes, Um,
1: that's right. Two things, Bernard, that are coming up with you talking about that is, one, we know that cities have become ghost towns somewhat mm. through the COVID pandemic and that the occupancy rates of commercial real estate are really, really struggling. Mm. So people have abandoned cities and scuttled back to their homes. Mm. Um, And so how do we reimagine the role of a city in the modern world, in the post-pandemic world?
2: I don't think that we're going to see the ASX top 200 businesses uh, run from a home office, the premium end of business will still want Collins Street, Sydney Key, whatever it is, the top street there, and Eagle Street in Brisbane or whatever it is in Perth. But all of the secondary space, all of the consultants and contractors, you know, people like me, <laughs> effectively, who don't really need to be in the city, can do a greater proportion of their work, not all of it, a greater proportion of their work from home. And so that considerably alters the dynamics of the CBD. In one respects, the premium space becomes even more premium because you're dealing with people that have to be there, and their premium uh, businesses. But the secondary and tertiary space uh, is then up for grabs, and you think, well, no, what are we going to do with that? Mm-hmm. I, one of my columns, I bravely suggested that we could see a, a change in land use. So, social housing, for oh. example, uh, could be uh, could be a use,
1: or green, like the High Line in New York, like yeah. green spaces, green spaces, or whatever. Roads. Just
2: you know, boldly reimagine. Mm. Sometimes those sorts of shifts don't happen quickly. That the issue needs to fester and ferment for a number of years before people say, actually, you know, we need to uh, rethink this entirely. But if you, if if I am correct, and we're looking at a, a trajectory shift in human behaviour in in Australia, with a greater proportion of people working from home, then the primacy of the CBD doesn't doesn't evaporate. It's just there's not the gap between the CBD and the suburbs, mm. and so suburbs uh, burst into life.
1: How
0: will it impact our relationships? This shift,
2: well. In one respects, you could say, well, actually, you know, having greater dwell time in the family home with your life partner can expose cracks and frailties and so forth. And, uh, you know, that may need to be worked out in, in due course.
1: You could have like an in-home psychologist in <laughs> yes, right. a room.
2: But equally, you could say, well, beyond that, it would actually strengthen uh, relationships. Um, so those that aren't uh, troubled by this, that the, the, there are people that would actually think this is a terrific way to, uh, to, to run my life. That needs to play out uh, mm-hmm. a little, uh, a little more, I think.
1: If we think about what's happening, then with a lot of people making that choice to move out of cities and, and into regional, correct, <laughs> and into regional areas, and being a regional, yeah, uh, you know, person yourself in, in your early life, what are your sort of thoughts around what will happen there? Because traditionally, there's been a big divide between city and country, two Australia's really, and, and yeah. do you think there would be some bridging? What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I do. I, look, I do think that. Um, I don't think people are going to stream out of Melbourne and Sydney and relocate to the Tanami Desert, but they will go up the coast, down the coast to tree change, sea change communities, well-resourced regional centres, for example, so you need cultural facilities and, and, and so forth. If you consider that we've got that movement running at the moment, moment, plus we've had drought-busting summer rains last summer, not you know 2020 summer, there's a great positivity returning to the uh, region so the difference that the the gap between regional life and metropolitan life i think is um is easing
1: as long as we see then a commitment for a policy shift and funding and infrastructure to support the development of those regional communities and that where we think about work from anywhere and this movement to remote work that companies are willing to say that's fine you can work from your yoga deck you know in Byron Bay Mm. in the hinterland Um, you know we need to see actually the workforce and our structural systems start to support that
2: Uh, very much so and I think if you think through the type of infrastructure required it's like access to NBN uh, is a driving force uh, behind behind that. Uh, I do remember when this whole sea change movement kicked off in the early two thousands. I remember addressing a group of mayors of sea change councils shires across Australia. And this uh, fellow came up to me at the break and he said, you know, those um, sea changes, they're coming out of places like Bondi to my community. And the first thing they do is say, where's the cultural facility or whatever they expect, Bondi. Dad, the
0: National
1: Gallery. uh,
2: uh, Facilities and cultural accoutrement to be delivered into that town. Now, to some extent, that's great because you're lifting the bar and it may not be, you know, the Opera House, but it actually lifts the bar there. But... There can be sometimes a mismatch between Vespa expectations and the capacity of the local community and local council to deliver uh, against those or expectations. Old ways and new ways. And if we're yeah. making
0: a, a sea change or a tree change, why are we trying to replicate what we've come from? <laughs> yeah. well, that's
2: that's true. Although, when it comes to food and coffee, uh, the regions are very proud of the fact that uh, you can get what you can get in the capital city better. Uh, at a better price and, you know, we've got just as complicated coffee orders in Dubbo and Wagga Mm. uh, and Mount Gambier as you can get in the city. And
1: maybe also, you know, sea change, tree change, but it's all been born of the me change.
0: Did
1: you like see what I did there? I do, The the me change that COVID catalyzed because it was this great existential awakening for a lot of people which was, hang on, the world turned what do I actually want? It's all about me. And then we got these shifts and step changes in the way people viewed their work or choices or or where they live.
2: I do think that there is a great reset, you know, this whole idea yeah. of a Control-Alt-Delete mm. moment in, in time. And I think it needs to have been more than just a month or two, you know, 12 months or more. You know, it's sort of like a, a war scale timeframe. Yeah, because
1: everyone has rebooted the hard drive and you know, gone back.
2: I do think people think, you know, am I in the right job? Am I in the right relationship, which goes to your point about personal relationships? Am I in the right house, accommodation, suburb, town? And I also wonder whether, in fact, there's not a spiritual element mm. to this as well. You've got the baby boomers now pushing into their 60s and early 70s. There's a mortality confrontation <laughs> coming up. So, you know, we could actually be rethinking how we want our lives to be organized, which comes back to my argument that post covid it's not just a matter of rebooting but it's actually a matter of reimagining a better version of australia and i think a better version is okay work from home 2 days a week go into the office or the workplace 3 days a week you know you take this amount of people off the roads you reduce carbon emissions it's better for your mental health that is a better that is a better option
0: going forward but it is a paradigm shift from where we came from. It is.
2: Ultimately, it is a major paradigm shift from the way we were before, which was the CBD was the font of all sophistication in a colonial society like Australia. And therefore, the further you were from the CBD, then the less sophisticated you were, <laughs> including out into the uh, into the regions. And I think that is being uh, turned on its head uh, at the moment. And it's coincided at, you know, with the end of the drought as well. Mm. It was almost quite a cataclysmic element to the um, 2020 summer. Not just the ending of the drought, but you know the, the the hellish bushfires as well, and then the pandemic. It's like you know we're just waiting for a plague of locusts next. So uh, or the frogs fall or the frogs. The sky, yeah. To it. to reimagine. Look, you know, we it's time to actually rethink how we've been organising our lives. Is well, the-
1: how many shocks do we need? I mean, climate change, I suppose we've got, it's all there, all these wicked problems and Mm -hmm. they're they're growing and at at which point are we willing to collectively um, look in at that and say it's it's time to create the structural shifts. We need to address the problems that are sitting out there. We've got an ageing population that we're not catering for. We've got, you know, the climate change issues. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to solve.
2: There is a lot of stuff to solve. There's issues around geopolitical alliances. There's issues around generational change. This, to me, is um, is the transition from baby boomer elements in the workforce to Generation X and millennials. Over the next five years, the millennial generation will push from their mid-30s to late-30s, early-40s. They're partnering up, they have kids, they want a bigger home, they've got to move out of their inner-city hipster apartment and into you know a home that's suitable for a family. So there's a whole range of shifts that are coming together right now in this um, post-COVID era.
0: Mm. And what about for the slightly younger generation? Between Mads and I, we have three kids at Mm -hmm. uni and three in high school still. What would your advice be for those early 20-somethings? Early
2: 20s. Look, um, there was a time when I would say, well, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, you know, the geeks are the future. But I'm not entirely sure that that's the way of the future. That's the sort of thing, you know, the sort of quality that I think that a young person needs is not something that will be taught at university and not something that will be taught at home. It is taught by parents. So this is putting it entirely back on, on you as parents or as, as my parent as well. Uh, and that is the ability to respond and be upbeat in the moment. It's yes. resilience. What we can say about, say, a 22-year-old today is that they will have no less than 15 jobs, 15 to 20 jobs, they say, throughout the working life. That means 15 to 20 times you need to go into an office and pitch your case. If you are not articulate, if you are not self-confident, if you cannot uh, explain yourself... If you are not sociable. Likeable. Likeable. Yeah. All of that. It's
1: all the, it's the human skills. It's in, the soft in, skills. Yeah. yeah. In, in our work with Future Amps, we work with, you know, thousands of young Australians around looking at employability and how do they successfully transition from education to employment. And we've moved from skills, not scores. So it yep. used to be scores was the old metric. Yep. And now we're moving toward that stackable, skills. unpackable yep. demonstration of how can I actually transfer those skills across my 20 jobs and five industries in yep. my gig-based economy uh, kind of future. The problem is, though, that our education system is not keeping up. It's actually not meeting the needs of yeah. industry 4.0 or 5.0 or wherever you want to go. Do you, What do you think needs to be... Fixed, understood about education today. So we are really equipping that next generation with what they need to successfully gain employability. I'm
2: very fond of these idea of interlocking Venn uh, circles. The whole Venn diagram. (laughs) No, no, I should. I can't do that for a podcast. But uh, certainly, having technically, you need you need the education technical skills. I learned that from my master supervisor, who taught me technically how to write. And how to address a, a particular issue. But then you need sociability, you need likability, you need to be self-confident, you need to be articulate. And you need to be adaptable. And another word for that is resilient. Mm. You know, you can you can have your kid come through the best university and the you know the coolest job title, whatever. But if the business they are working for in 2035 folds and is bought out by a Silicon Valley company does your child who is then 35 partnered with two kids do they say i'm really special i've been told i'm special or my and and the universe will provide no it won't you need to to get out there work out what your skills are and apply them in a very charming but but purposeful way to take your skill set and make them fit into the way in which the world has changed.
1: Yeah, it's tra- it's transferring them. It's a skill stack and we know companies are hiring for that now yeah. over and above an academic stack. So, so again, if you think about it, right, if you're bought out by a, a parent company that's international, well, you need intercultural competency because you need to yeah. better work yeah. across those cultures or geographies and problem solving, you know, remote work, teamwork, critical thinking, all those things that we never really used to account for. Uh, or or test for, if you like, and now there's a huge rise in that. We're just not seeing that reflected quickly enough in in the education system to explicitly teach resilience or intercultural competence.
2: Are you phased by that change or do you regard this as a terrific opportunity? Uh, It's a terrific opportunity to learn new skills, to meet new people, uh, to um, rise to a challenge and to grow as uh, as a person and as a professional, or do you say damn, I've just got everything going right in my life and now all of that has to change. You know, oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me is not a strategy. You need a strategy to come out of that. Working out what you're good at and then, and then applying them to the way in which the world has changed. And there is no doubt the world has changed dramatically in the last um, 12 months or so. So do you throw up your hands and say, look, I've had enough, just out of here? Or do you think, okay, where are the opportunities? What have I got? How do I fit in? Who do I know? How can I make this work?
0: And you're saying you think it's beholden on the parents? I
2: I do think you learn those those skills at at home, whether you're sociable, whether you're articulate, whether you have self-confidence, whether you are adaptable. All of those things, I think, are anchored in the uh, in the family home, and then are, you know, they can be um, embellished and supported, burnished at school and at university in various programs. But I do think it comes from home.
1: The Japanese have a term called ikigai, which means a reason for being. Ikigai. Ikigai. Yeah, it literally translates as a reason for being, and it's for right. different areas. It's like a Venn diagram. You'd love it. <laughs> no it's overlap. Like- what do I love? What could I be paid for? You know, yeah. What is my purpose? So it's about getting to that nexus of what is it that ignites you or gets you out of bed yeah. in the morning. I mean, what gets you out of bed? What's the thing that uh, goes, bang, well, I'm into the day?
2: Well, I'm, I'm always engaged by what I'm doing, what I'm writing, where I'm speaking, um, you know, any media or anything like that. always try to get, configure the best possible pitch to that. I want to try and deliver the best opinion, the best insight the most interesting charts, graphs, connect with as many people as possible on this area of, uh, of expertise because I find it fascinating.
1: Mm. Who do you test it on to make sure it's the best? <laughs> um,
2: well, my, my PA um, who lives in Geelong um, and my uh, colleagues at, at the demographics group, so uh, Simon Kirstenmacher uh, is a up-and-coming version of, uh, of, of me.
1: What are you doing next?
2: What is next for me is to survive the pandemic. I want my business to survive. I want... My the people I work with, my staff, to survive and thrive and grow. I'm doing my best to grow and to develop Simon Kustermarker on the speaking circuit and um, developing opinion. Trying my best to get Ahari to um, uh, to become an Australian citizen. She wants to become an Australian citizen. Uh, she make a terrific contribution to Australia and others as well in my group. You know, I have this. Uh, I, I I once. Met uh, someone twenty years ago. Uh, it was on the speaking circuit. Uh, I won't mention his name, but he's very well known. He was very, very supportive of me. The speaking circuit can be a little bit bitchy, <laughs> you know. Uh, people are quite jealous or whatever it is. And this guy was the doyen of his day, and uh, I was a bit intimidated meeting. He said, "I've oh, I love your stuff. You're doing such a terrific job, presenting so well, and congratulations and what." And I was really taken aback. You know, he's like 20 years older than me. And I thought, this guy is fearless. He's not intimidated by me. He's not threatened by me. And I thought, I am going to do that when I get older. When I make it, I'm going to make be exactly like that. And, uh, you know, it's that idea of paying it forward. Mm. You just need one experience of someone who is not threatened by you to give you encouragement and affirmation. And it was so powerful.
0: What stops you sharing his name? Because that's such a positive story. And why oh, well, not I will. Celebrate okay, I will. Who I will. Is? It
2: was uh, Phil Riven, who's chairman of IBIS. And I've told Phil this. And uh, he uh, smiled and, you know, he's a, it, it, just an extraordinarily generous person to a young person who could have been seen as you know, a threat a threat, or, mm. you know, who are you and all that sort of – didn't say – just so confident and so charming and so supportive.
0: We finish this podcast with the same question and I can almost guess who some of the people <laughs> you're going to answer because, well, the question is, you know, amongst the complexities of, of life, we wonder who you think is doing human well. But before you answer who is doing human well – I'm really touched by the story that you've shared today and the arc of the people who have influenced and mentored and supported you. You had your um, history teacher at high school. Then you had your supervisor when you did your master's. Mm -hmm. Now Phil is a speaker. Mm. There's a beautiful um, sense of gratitude.
2: There is. I I will say that uh, I was wonderfully supported, you know, for 20 years. I was a partner in, a, in an accounting firm and I will say that they were remarkably supportive. Um, you know, I do feel that I gave back <laughs> to the firm. But um, it's, it's very, important, very important on the speaking circuit to have a mentor or a, or a guiding post because you can get things out of proportion sometimes and having people about 10 or 15 years older than you that are far more successful it just sort of you know just you just sort of see where you sit in life you don't get things out of proportion so having that framework around you was incredibly important i think it uh, just showed you this is this is the right way to uh, you know, to grow and to develop your career.
0: Mm. So, in addition to these three wise men that you mm. referenced,
2: oh, and I would put my certainly my mother, that filing cabinet mind of my my mother, who should have been should have been able to do a science degree, I think.
0: So, these are the people that are doing human well in your mind.
2: Uh, yes, yes. Um, I would uh, I would say that. Look, these are these are people that um you know just go about their everyday life. Provide a good example. And I think it's the skill of being able to identify someone that doesn't necessarily put themselves forward or isn't held up as being some celebrity or influencer. I thought, that person is absolutely brilliant. I can see that. My mother and father, but my mother in particular, that's an extraordinary mind. That was an extraordinarily generous interchange with Phil. And I'm going to imitate that later in life. So there are people around you that do human well. Don't let them go unacknowledged. And even today, you know, about three months ago, I was having trouble with Zoom, and this this um, lady, a PA uh, for this business that I was Zooming to, took me offline and said, Bernard, here's what you need to do. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. I was so grateful. I actually wrote an email to her boss and said, this person was just so helpful and well done, and uh, you know it had a big impact. If you see it, don't just say well done. Identify it, name it, explain why that person helping you seven minutes before I was going live to three hundred people was really really important. She kept a cool and got me through it. Explain that to her boss, mm. and it has a big impact.
1: And she helped the baby zoomer. She did help the
2: baby <laughs> Zoomer, That's right. Um, but again, yes, there's uh, you know there is good humanity everywhere. You just need to pick it out, showcase it, and learn lessons from it.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit.
0: And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.